Welcome to the Global Research News Hour for the week of December 1st, 2017. My name is Michael Welch. The Global Research News Hour is a special radio collaboration between the Center for Research on Globalization and campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg on occupied Anishinaabe territory on the homeland of the Métis Nation. We seek to provide listeners with access to analysis of some of the major issues facing our world today from thinkers, researchers, and unique political personalities rarely addressed by major media. On this week's show, we depart from our regular format to pay tribute to the life and work of media critic and anti-war activist Edward Herman. Over the course of the next hour, we'll hear from individuals who have been influenced and enlightened by the work of Edward Samuel Herman who died on November 11, 2017, of bladder cancer. He was 92. Edward Herman was born in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania in April of 1925, a self-described depression baby. He was the son of pharmacist father and a homemaker mother, both liberal Democrats. He included, among his early influences, the economic downturn of the 1930s, the events of the Second World War, and relatives with radical political leanings. After obtaining his bachelor's and a master of arts degrees at the University of Pennsylvania, he would attend the University of California, Berkeley, and earn a Doctor of Philosophy degree in 1953. In those post-war years, Berkeley was a breeding ground for radical thought. The economist Robert Brady and his book, The Spirit and Structure of German Fascism, proved to be influential on Edward Herman's thinking. Edward Herman would join the University of Pennsylvania's Wharton School of Finance in 1958. His PhD thesis concerned the Bank of America system. Over the next 15 years, he would work on group studies on financial institutions, with he as the specialist on corporate control. By the early 70s, he would get involved with the anti-war movement, where he would connect with the noted linguist and dissident Noam Chomsky. The two of them collaborated on three books in the 1970s, including Counter-Revolutionary Violence, Bloodbaths in Fact and Propaganda in 1973, as well as The Political Economy of Human Rights, Volume 1, The Washington Connection and the Third World Fascism in 1979, and The Political Economy of Human Rights, Volume 2, After the Cataclysm, Post-War Indochina and the Reconstruction of Imperial Ideology, also in 1979. By the 1980s, Herman's interest and expertise in corporate structure and power within the larger societal framework would lead to the famous deconstruction of the mainstream media found in his most famous collaboration with Chomsky, The Manufacture of Consent, The Political Economy of the Mass Media, published in 1988. The opening chapter of Manufacturing Consent is entitled A Propaganda Model. Herman and Chomsky assert that in a society such as that in the United States, there are inequalities in power, wealth, and influence. Elite elements of the society are able to exert their influence on media output through various mechanisms that filter the news to their advantage, marginalize dissent, and facilitate the expression of propaganda favoring the wealthy and their agents in the state. Herman and Chomsky identified five specific filters. Number one, the size and concentrated ownership and profit orientation of the dominant mass media outlets. Number two, advertising as the media firm's main source of revenue. Number three, the reliance on information provided by so-called experts in government and business who have the approval and funding of elite elements of society. Number four, so-called flack 
or negative feedback, which acts to discipline the media in question when they step beyond established parameters of thought. And finally, number five, anti-communism as a national religion and control mechanism. In the follow-up chapters, Manufacturing Consent would provide a number of case studies which differentiate how tragedies and humanitarian crises are dealt with differently depending on the status of the target community as an enemy or ally. This discrepancy is referred to in Chapter 2 as the worthy and unworthy victims. Manufacturing Consent proved to be a seminal work for a generation of activists who recognized the importance of media in shaping the perceptions of the general public in a way that served imperial powers and major corporate interests. One of the activists influenced by Herman's work was none other than frequent guest, colleague, and friend Stephen Lendman. Stephen Lendman is a writer, radio host, and independent journalist. He too attended the Wharton School of Finance at the University of Pennsylvania, where he obtained his MBA in 1960. He worked as a marketing research analyst until joining his family's business in 1967, where he would work until retiring in 1999. Stephen relayed the critical role Edward Herman played in redirecting his own political thinking. So we're joined right now by Stephen Lendman. Uh, It's great to have you back on the show, Stephen. Michael, it's great to be back on with you and uh, delighted to be able to talk about Ed Herman. Sad that he passed. He was age 92, and uh, you get into your 90s, you probably are getting close to your end time. But it's never, it's never, a, it's never pleasant to think about somebody who's important and has done so much good work uh, to no longer be with us, Michael. I know we agree on that. You mentioned in an article you published a couple of days after his death that Edward Herman inspired your embarking on a second career as a journalist and political writer. Was there a specific article or book in particular that hooked your interest? Well, he inspired me in a number of ways, uh, Michael. Uh, I read, uh, I think if I hadn't read all of his books, I came very close and I've got them all on my bookshelf, but I connected to Ed in an unusual way. I never had a home computer until nearly age 71, I confess. And my daughter convinced me to get one, and she broke me in. She showed me the basics, and I was off and running. I had no idea that it would change my life, and indeed it did. Before that, I wrote letters to people, friends, and other people, including Ed, uh, Letters which I wrote in an unusual way, uh, they were very long. I hand-wrote them, and then I edited them and rewrote them. I wrote Ed a letter. A couple, couple of weeks later, he answered me. So we connected in that way. Uh, once I got a computer, there was no need to hand-write letters anymore. Everything done online, which is the best way to do it, of course. But that's how I connected with Ed. I've spoken to him a number of times. Uh, He contributed to the book that I edited and contributed to on Ukraine, uh, Flashpoint in Ukraine. Uh, That was in 2014. And uh, I miss him very much. He largely focused on the the propaganda system uh, within the United States. And certainly was, uh, you know, his uh, manufacturing consent was an eye-opener you know, co-written with Noam Chomsky was a big eye-opener for me and it sort of uh, kind of paved the way to my own uh, activism and, and journalism. So I'm, I'm just wondering uh, if there are specific elements of his message that uh, speaks to you on an ongoing basis. 
Well, he was very strongly anti-war. His manufacturing consent with Noam Chomsky, uh, that was the seminal work, the one that uh, they're best noted for. And Ed wrote most of the book. I'm not certain what percentage each of them contributed, but it was really Ed's book and Chomsky contributed to it. And uh, Ed was a media critic. Uh, Chomsky more a, uh, a political activist in other ways, but uh, Ed, one of his attributes besides being a political economist, he was a media critic, so it was natural for him to write a book like this. I've quoted him from that book a number of times over the years in articles that I've written, and I've got the book on my shelf. It's just marvelous. Uh, I hope I've got the chapter right. I think one of the chapters in the book was uh, Worthy and Unworthy Victims. And uh, I wrote an article years ago using that title, and uh, he commented to me saying, Steve, that was chapter, I think it was chapter six, I'll have to check it, that was chapter six of my book. And I, I forgot about that. I went back to look at it and said, indeed it was. Uh, so I apologize to Ed. I, did, I don't think I mentioned manufacturing consent in my article, but I used that as a title. It was what he used as, as a title of one of his chapters. But again, it was a marvelous book. But he's done so much more. Uh, books uh, co- uh, co-authored with Chomsky, uh, by him, written by himself, uh, co-authored with one of our other contributors, uh, a lot of anti-war activism. I think I think he was as well known for that in in the books that he's written as manufacturing. Not as well known. Manufacturing consent is was is his best known work. But certainly, from my perspective, his anti-war activism every bit as important, maybe more important. I wonder if you could comment on how Edward Herman's message applies today at a time when we're seeing independent media outlets under attack as being fake news or or Russian, you know, useful idiots or whatever, uh, allegations of Russian meddling in the U.S. elections and distortions of the regime change operations in Syria and Ukraine. You know, what what is is Edward Herman's message, uh, how does it apply today? Well, I think he pretty clearly uh, showed the way the major media works uh, in uh, America and other Western societies. Uh, uh, again, again, the, the mission is uh, uh, the title of his book, Manufacturing Consent. It wasn't the first major media critique book. Michael Parenti wrote, uh, I think, uh, wrote the first one. And I don't remember the title, but I read it years ago, and it's on my shelf, uh, probably written oh, maybe in the 1960s or so, I'd have to go back and check uh, the publication date. But I believe that was the first major one. Uh, uh, the Chomsky, the Herman Chomsky book, the second one, better known. Uh, it's a shame. Uh, Michael's book uh, also was a marvelous, marvelous book. It doesn't get the credit that it deserves compared to manufacturing consent. Uh, go ahead, Michael. Oh, um, yeah, I think that... Uh, I, I guess one other point I was hoping to raise with you was the the issue of, well, your own, maybe any personal anecdotes you have to share uh, with regard to uh, Mr. Herman, uh, like uh, any personal interactions or uh, any common um, areas of interest, inquiry. I didn't really answer your last question very well. I think I think... You want to start over? <laughs> Should I oh, ask no, you we again? Could, we, could just, we could just continue on. 
uh, I, I think I think Ed would uh, went right to the end, I believe, and I don't think he was doing too well health-wise at the end. He was dealing with bladder cancer, and that's uh, was uh, the cause of his death. I don't know how long he dealt with that, but uh, a cancer is a very very tough illness to go through. Uh, Ed was very concerned about uh, the state of the world and uh, where we're heading. Uh, the media is simply uh, an example of that, simply suppressing truth-telling on vital issues. And uh, the things going on today which obsess Ed the way they obsess me, and obsess any individual that's really concerned about uh, having a world at peace and ending imperial wars and so on, is we're really heading into, into a dark age. Well, we're already in an age of endless imperial wars. Uh, the possibility of a nuclear war is very, very great. Uh, uh, we've got the people in Washington, whether it's Trump and the hawkish generals in the administration at the Pentagon, with uh, intent on regime change. And all independent countries, an issue I, I address over and over again, and uh, the idea of targeting these countries, uh, America's favorite uh, strategies are either color revolutions or wars, and we can see all the wars ongoing now. Uh, we either have to find a way to stop this stuff, or we're going to end up in a nuclear war. It could be on the Korean Peninsula, it could be against Russia, it could be against Iran, it could be against all three. And I've said many times in articles, that's, that's the ultimate doomsday scenario. If that happens, I don't, I don't see any hope to humanity. We could all be doomed. A nuclear war is the end of things. Uh, one bomb isn't an issue, but, but the, the, a nuclear war would involve more than, more than one bomb. And if there's a war against Russia, uh, they can come back at the USA the same way as they could hit Russian territory. But we really have, we have, we have people in Washington who believe the way to, uh, to achieve global dominance is by eliminating all these independent governments. And, and the main strategy, color revolutions for certain, had enough of those, but the main strategy strategy seems to be war, and again, we see so many of them ongoing now. It's a very, very dangerous t time. I, I can't remember any other time in my life that I have been more concerned about the state of things going on than now, and I think that I'm glad that I'm old and not young, Michael, because as a young person, I don't know what I'd have to look forward to. I, I just, one more comment I, I'd like to get from you before you close is that uh, I probably, something I find a little bit interesting, you just told me before we uh, started this interview, that you actually crossed paths with Edward Herman in the distant past. I sure did. He and I were at the Wharton School together in the 1950s. Uh, he was a uh, financial researcher. He later became a professor of finance. I was in marketing. The only finance course I took was uh, one in money and banking that told me everything about the Federal Reserve except what I needed to know, the way they teach it there. A lot of, a lot of formulas and so on unrelated to uh, the real workings of the Fed and, uh, and money and banking, which I've written about quite a lot in my articles. But Ed and I were there at the same time. I never met him, I'm sad to say. I think we would have become friends had I done it, because I know he was activist back then. And I remember once he said to me, I think I asked him, how did you get along back at the Wharton School, uh, given what you do and so on? And he made a comment, something like, they tolerated me. <laughs> I want to thank you for sharing these thoughts with us. Thank you, Michael. Always a pleasure to be on with you. That was writer and frequent global research contributor Stephen Lendman. Jeff Cohen has a long history with Herman. He's the founder of Fairness and Accuracy in Reporting, a media watchdog group. On November 14th, Cohen wrote an article for the FAIR website entitled Edward S. Herman, Master of Dissent.
The Global Research News Hour contacted him to elaborate on his thoughts and recollections of Edward Herman. One of the big reasons I found it fair was because of Herman and Chomsky. Their critiques were so clear, uh, using case studies of how there's so much negative coverage in the U.S. about enemy states, but right next door, if there's an allied government that has far worse human rights record, that will get far less coverage in U.S. media. The case studies that those two did were sort of why we formed FAIR. The other uh, key influencer was Ben Bagdikian, who had written so brilliantly about the impact of media conglomerates. But when it came to analyzing the content of news, it was Herman and Chomsky. And uh, before I started FAIR, I was briefly an attorney, and I was in El Salvador on a lawyer's delegation. We were monitoring one of these elections where obviously the left could not participate because the left were victims of death squads. And um, we went down there, U.S. attorneys, uh, trying to monitor this alleged election. And while we're down there, the week, the week that we were there, uh, Edward Herman's book with Frank Broadhead called Demonstration Elections came out, and they rushed us like a box of books, and the lawyers, the you know progressive and civil rights lawyers who are in El Salvador are eating up this book, because what the book showed is that in many different places, Dominican Republic, Vietnam, El Salvador, part of the U.S. propping up a right-wing puppet regime would be staging these elections. And here's how they would do it. And here's the kind of media coverage in the United States that would ensue when the U.S. set up a demonstration election in a country like El Salvador. So it was very, very helpful. And yes, uh, Ed Herman's work was instrumental in my thinking when I uh, came up with the idea that we need to have a progressive media watch group that did well-documented studies of U.S. media bias. Mm. Did FAIR's work uh, alter or change or maybe refine uh, in its, become more refined in its uh, analysis uh, after manufacturing consent came out? I'm not sure about that. I think we were already on the Herman Chomsky wavelength. Uh, Noam Chomsky was one of the first uh, members of our advisory board. So manufacturing consent is a great achievement. But I, you know, we were reading all of their books. Um, and I think the one thing that we tried to do at FAIR was to take the Herman Chomsky analysis and popularize it. I mean, Herman and Chomsky were re- writing these books uh, certainly back when they were first published, did not get a lot of attention, did not get much attention in the mainstream media. So the reason for FAIR was to take this well-documented critique of U.S. media bias and try to get it into the mainstream media. And, you know, so I would appear on TV making some of the arguments that Herman and Chomsky had made in their 400-page books, and I would try to boil it down to a two-minute soundbite. And we were writing op-ed columns, and we were getting our small newsletter and magazine inside the New York Times newsroom and the Washington Post and public TV, PBS. You know, we, we were trying to take the 
Herman Chomsky analysis and bring it to the masses and force it in front of the eyes of uh, mainstream journalists. Now, speaking about mainstream journalism, I I understand that you've worked in mainstream corporate media. You were a commentator for CNN, Fox, and MSNBC, and even served as a senior producer for uh, broadcaster Phil Donahue's program before it got cancelled in the lead-up to the Iraq War. Having been inside the the sausage factory, in in a sense, could you comment on any experiences or observances you had which maybe reinforced or or countered what Herman and Chomsky had said about the propaganda model? Yeah, that's a great question because, you know, I'm over there. The, the one time, the deepest I got into the mainstream media is when I worked every day at MSNBC in their big newsroom in 2002, 2003, which were the months leading up to the Iraq invasion. And um, I remember talking to my former colleagues at FAIR and, you know, my, my one-sentence conclusion is it's worse than we thought. You know, when you're inside the sausage factory, it's worse than you could ever imagine. And, uh, you know, the thing about Herman and Chomsky is they focused on the content. Their analysis wasn't how does the sausage get made, it's what's wrong with the sausage and why is it so wrong and why is it so unhealthy. Uh, so I'm on the inside, and I'm on the inside during a crisis for U.S. mainstream journalism, which is the White House is pushing the country and the world to a war, invasion of Iraq. They're doing it on the basis of claims that are almost ludicrous on their face. And so the mainstream media is in a real bind. And I worked on the show, as you mentioned, the Phil Donahue primetime show on MSNBC, and we were putting on like former UN weapons inspectors or trying to put them on the air who were saying, no, this, they don't have any weapons. And if they have any biological or chemical weapons, they're totally degraded and harmless by now. Um, we brought on the US, former U.S. Attorney General Ramsey Clark, and then management at MSNBC told us, oh, he's not supposed to be on this network. And remember, I'm talking about 2002, not 1952. But there was a, uh, you know, I learned there was some sort of blacklist at MSNBC. And when we would put, like, Scott Ritter on the air, who was a former UN weapons inspector who totally challenged the notion that the U.S. uh, had to invade Iraq over the weapons of mass destruction. Uh, after we'd put him on the air, the next day we would hear all these smears in the newsroom that Scott Ritter was getting funded by Saddam Hussein. Mm. And indeed, one person at MSNBC went on the air with no evidence. There never is any evidence. There never was any evidence that Scott Ritter was being paid by the Iraqi dictator Saddam Hussein was somehow getting Saddam Hussein's funds. So yes, when I was on the inside... Um, and saw how the sausage was made, uh, you know, I could add a little bit, because Chomsky and Herman, they didn't waste a lot of time. They left it to other scholars and researchers to interview mainstream uh, reporters. Why did you do this and not do that? I, you know, they always get attacked, including in Ed's obituaries, for not, you know, mainstream obituaries, I should say, for not interviewing enough journalists. Well, yeah, 
there's worthy it's worthy to do that it's also worthy to just spend hours and weeks and months and years as herman and chomsky did looking at the content of the news that's a lot there's a lot of value in that and i lucked out through a fluke in my career where I, I was already armed with the Herman Chomsky critique of the media and the Ben Bagdikian critique of media co- conglomerate ownership. And then I did get on the inside, and I saw it was as bad or worse than anyone could have known. <laughs> about that? Kind of, uh, <clears throat> kind of reminds me a little bit about uh, you know, what you might see these days is uh, you know, certain un- inconvenient opinions being funded by uh, Russian backers as opposed to Saddam. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, it's, um, the same, it's the same thing that I mean, what I saw when I was inside mainstream media, which was decades after the anti-communist Joe McCarthy witch hunts, is there was still and television, of course, was a medium that was born in the era of the witch hunts. I saw this just this allergy to having progressive points of view on and they had have in mainstream media, and I've written about this a lot, uh, and so have Chom- so so did Chomsky beginning in the late '60s. Uh, the phony debates, the narrow debates, where you know you have a centrist uh, corporate Democrat yelling at a Republican, and they're spewing, they're ranting, they seem to hate each other. Uh, but the debate never goes beyond the center to right. It never goes beyond a corporate spectrum. It never goes beyond uh, General Electric to General Motors spectrum, GE to GM. It's what Chomsky wrote about in the late 60s, about here is the hawks and here are the doves. But the doves weren't really challenging the moral or imperial basis of the Vietnam War. They were saying, well, it's taken too long, let's get out. And that was the limit of acceptable debate. So, you know, it was fascinating for me to go on the inside and see the way the mainstream media would construct these center-right, these narrow debates. And, of course, the two people debating would be, you know, their veins are bulging in their neck, they're yelling at each other, but ultimately, politically, ideologically, it's a very, very, very narrow debate. And progressive and independent points of view are generally uh, excluded. Can you say, I noticed in your, no, your November 14th article for FAIR, you referred to Edward, Edward Herman as the master of dissent. Can you say more about the legacy you see Professor Herman leaving behind? Yeah. Well, I mean, Matt Taibbi in Rolling Stone wrote a wonderful uh, article. I mean, I, I think the legacy is um, question the mainstream media. Don't just question Fox News. Question the New York Times and NPR in Washington Washington Post. Those are the main organs of uh, the uh, governing elite, more important even than Fox News, although there's obviously reason to critique Fox News. So I think Ed was someone who, you know, personally, he was so quiet and so mild-mannered. And when you would mic him up for a radio show or a public, you know, you had to keep telling him, put your mouth close to the mic, <laughs> because he was so quiet. But his analysis was so angry. And, you know, his books had such moral indignation about how can the mainstream media, in a society where journalists do not get jailed or tortured, how can it be so cowardly 
in reporting on crimes committed by the U.S. government or its allies compared to the way Page One News is consumed by atrocities of our enemy states. And I think it was that moral indignation um, from the uh, corporate liberal or, or imperial liberal elite. It was that moral indignation, I think, that people who have studied Ed, have met Ed Herman, uh, that's the legacy, is uh, to stand up to them. And it, it comes at personal cost. I mean, Edward Herman was victimized by a smear in the obituary of the New York Times after he died, where the New York Times obituary writer claimed that manufacturing consent, which came out in the late 80s, had uh, undersold or understated the genocide in Rwanda and atrocities in Bosnia. Well, those events hadn't even happened until after the book came out. So, uh, I mean, if you're talking about the kind of cost that, to Edward Herman, you know, when you do the kind of rigorous critique of mainstream media, including the liberal media, uh, then you really sort of get shunned and the mainstream media and others in academia try to push you aside. And I think Ed Herman is sort of a model of bravery uh, that you stand up for uh, this kind of analysis and this kind of critique. Uh, no matter what the uh, uh, personal shunning that goes on. You're listening to the Global Research News Hour, broadcast out of CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg, Manitoba, Canada, on the occupied territory of the Anishinaabe and the homeland of the Red River Metis. This week, we are profiling the life and work of media critic and activist Edward Herman. In that last interview, mention was made of Edward Herman's later work. In 2010, he, together with Chicago-based colleague David Peterson, wrote The Politics of Genocide. This volume posited that the term genocide has been weaponized and is used in instances when the U.S. empire feels the need to thwart development or movements that run counter to the domination of the ruling elite. In 2014, Herman and Peterson co-authored Enduring Lies, the Rwandan genocide in the propaganda system 20 years later. They present the Tutsi-led Rwandan Patriotic Front as having initiated the killing spree 46 months in advance of the April 6, 1994 shootdown of the jet carrying Hutu President Juvenal Habyarimana, the act which, according to the Standard account, triggered the infamous killing spree that would follow over the next 100 days. This depiction of events has placed Herman at odds with prominent commentators on the subject, including Gerald Kaplan and George Monbiot. Some journalists have chosen to embrace Herman and Peterson's research and conclusions. One of these is Anne Garrison, a writer and KPFA broadcaster. Garrison has interviewed Edward Herman several times. She regularly contributes also to Black Agenda Report, Black Star News, Digital Journal, Pambazooka News, Counterpunch, and Global Research, among other media outlets. Anne Garrison began corresponding with Edward Herman in 2010. Here she is in a recent conversation with Global Research, relaying her perspective on the man and his work. I'm wondering what he was able to share with you and what you could convey with regard to this idea of genocide inflation as an instrument of U.S. imperial policy. Uh. 
the the seriousness, uh, the gravity, and in some cases, most likely the numbers of U.S. allies who are massacred um, are inflated, and those uh, who are either U.S. enemies or unimportant, uh, whose deaths are unimportant to uh, the U.S. foreign policy agenda, uh, don't receive media attention or attention from public officials. And the Democratic Republic of the Congo is one of the uh, most glaring examples. Millions of people have died since Rwanda and Uganda invaded the Democratic Republic of the Congo in 1996 and then again in 1998. And, and since they've carried on an ongoing de facto occupation in many parts of the country, uh, millions of people have died, and the only uh, scientific epidemiological estimate was done by the International Rescue Committee, which estimated that 5.4 million people had died between 2000 and 2007. And many of those had died of displacement. They died of hunger, disease, or other hardship after being driven from their homes. Mm-hmm. And, and, and this is ongoing. Recently, the U.N., gave the Democratic Republic of the Congo a level three emergency rating, meaning it's one of, one of the worst in the world, along with Iraq, Syria, and Yemen. Mm. Oh, and, 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 it, and it receives very little press. And in fact, at the time that this was going on, uh, the Save Darfur Committee had... Sudan. Uh, come into being. It was, I think that was in 2004, because it was a year after the beginning of the Iraq War. I think you told me you had a clip of a conversation that I had with Ed about that argument that uh, the U.S. and or some assortment of, of Western forces should go into um, Sudan because of their mm-hmm. failure in yes. Rwanda. Yes, yeah. I could hear the pain in his voice when he said, no, we shouldn't intervene anywhere. We have such dirty hands. Maybe we'll just have a listen to it right now. We have such dirty hands. We're intervening all over the world now. We're the great aggressor nation of the world, and we're using the NATO as our agent. Why can't we just leave people alone? These Sudanese can settle their own affairs. They don't need us. And if we take Rwanda and the Congo as an illustration, the United States intervention there has involved the death of millions of people. And now with Rwanda, we have a minority dictatorship again. So the whole effect of the U.S. intervention there, not just standing by, but interventions, has been the death of millions. Okay, so that's uh, Edward Herman from uh, a conversation he had with you um, on this question of uh, humanitarian intervention in Sudan. Well, not not a very big fan of this uh, humanitarian intervention responsibility to protect doctrine, was he? Uh, not in the least. And that's one thing I've been thinking about since we lost him, because 
he said, as, as in that clip, he said, no, I don't think we should intervene anywhere. We have such dirty hands. And on many occasions he said, this is never done with any real humanitarian attentions. It's always politically agendized, or at least by the U.S. and its allies. If anyone can, th- if anyone can think of a contrary case, I'd like to know what it is, and I know that he didn't cite one. And you know, in that in that quote, he said the Sudanese will figure out their own problems. Why can't we just leave people alone? So you know, he he, he was saying that bad things are going to happen. I mean, bad things are going to happen, uh, but but people do have to work out their own problems, and we've got plenty of them here. No, no one's no one's intervening to clean up the water in Flint or do anything in the horrific about the horrific conditions in uh, the prison gulag with 2.3 million. U.S. prisoners, the greatest uh, per capita in the world, and one in every 110 Americans. Uh, so, Paul J. Paul J. asked him on the Real News. Paul J. asked him, "Well, well, what if one of our allies started slaughtering some of its own population, like Saudi Arabia? Would would you favor an intervention in that case?" And and he still said no. No, because we don't do that. That's not what the U.S. does. It's absolutely unrealistic to imagine any sort of humanitarian intervention. And he was also always careful to point out that the U.N. Charter authorized military intervention in a sovereign member nation only after the U.N. Security Council had agreed that it was called for and organized the response. And could you comment on um, what appears to be a kind of a shunning (laughs) from uh, elements of the left, uh, uh, largely apparently in response to this, uh, uh, his uh, critique of the uh, depictions of of what happened in Rwanda and uh, Srebrenica as genocides? It's astonished me how much everyone, um, most everyone on the left, has bought uh, the standard model of the Rwandan genocide. It's so institutionalized that it's it's very difficult to challenge. And as Ed and David wrote in Enduring Lies, uh, to be called a genocide denier is is to be uh, consigned to the lowliest strata of society with um, mother murderers and sex offenders and whatever else have you, extreme sociopaths. There's actually one exchange that's amusing regarding this that I'd recommend George Monbiot of The Guardian, he started denouncing Ed and David Peterson, his co-author, about the politics of genocide. And Noam Chomsky had written the introduction to that book. So, 
after after starting his attack on on uh, Ed and David Peterson, he wrote to Noam Chomsky and said, "How could you write this introduction to this book uh, written by these genocide deniers?" And <laughs> Chomsky wrote back and uh, told him that he did not see it that way and explained why he had written the introduction to the book and he shared some of his own thoughts about it. And Maviat wrote back uh, with the same demand again. And this exchange went on, I can't remember how many times, but it went back and back, back and forth and back and forth until Chomsky finally said, look, I've had it with you. <laughs> and, then, and then George Maviat said, oh my God, my idol, my idol, Noam Chomsky has been tar- targeted can't believe it. He associates with genocide deniers. Um, the the uh, and I was sounds you know, like it's a, just a, a non sequitur for some people. Well, it's supposed to be a conversation closer. Yeah. You're a genocide denier, and if say on social media uh, any kind of uh, discussion of a more complex story. As I said, a story which includes the four-year war that led to the massacres and uh, the inclusion of Hutu victims and Tutsi perpetrators. Uh, immediately, I'm called the genocide denier or anyone else who, who attempts such a conversation is as well. Uh, and that's just supposed to be the end of it. Ed did not let it, let it bother him. He always... Uh, Stuck to his guns, and the people who the people who called him and and uh, David Peterson and anyone else a genocide denier uh, were quite obviously absolutists who thought that they had the one truth, and it was not even to be discussed. In your last conversation, your last recorded conversation with Edward Herman, uh, he had some interesting comments about the 2016 election and how he differed from his uh, revered co-author and colleague Noam Chomsky in terms of voting for the Green presidential candidate Jill Stein rather than Hillary Clinton, who was perceived to be the lesser evil in that contest. Uh, what does that admission tell you about the man and his approach to politics and activism? Well, it's another example in which it's it was so very close to mine, and I really appreciated his willingness to do that, very to go public with that disagreement. It was not, it was not a bitter disagreement anyway. It was just you know a matter of fact disagreement. He said that uh, he had always believed in Kant's categorical imperative, meaning that you should do what you would like to see generalized. Uh-huh. So if he, he wanted, he would have liked to have seen uh, U.S. voters elect Jill Stein and Ajami Baraka, uh, even though only 1% did, and we knew we couldn't hope for much more than that that year. And one of the other important things he said about that was that he thought it was important for the Greens, who, who don't have the money to run candidates in all the local and state elections all over the country, or to run a lot of candidates for Congress, 
it was important for them to articulate opposition to war and militarism because that was the argument that was absent in the public discourse. Mm. And uh, it seems like his uh, Ed Herman's last uh, article had to do with the deconstruction of the New York Times uh, as an, sort of an ongoing theme in his work uh, as a uh, you know, sort of that major um, well talking about the uh, you know, New York Times as a, being basically a, a purveyor of uh, these propagandistic myths. I, I wonder if you had a comment about it that you wanted to share. I just want to read the first paragraph. He said, It has been amusing to watch the New York Times and other mainstream media outlets express their dismay over the rise and spread of, quote, fake news, unquote. These publications take it as an obvious truth that what they provide is straightforward, unbiased, fact-based reporting. They do offer such news but they also provide a steady flow of their own varied forms of fake news, often by disseminating false or misleading information supplied to them by the national security state, other branches of government, and sites of corporate power. And uh, this, is, this is more relevant every day. Uh, this morning I saw that a major newspaper was announcing its plan to cooperate with some kind of newly formed trust and with Facebook, Twitter, and Google to combat fake news. And their statement was, it was basically a restatement of that paragraph I just read. They were saying, we take it as an obvious truth that what we provide is straightforward, unbiased, fact-based reporting. Do you have a fond memory of of Professor Herman, uh, whether it was during an interview or a phone conversation or any other interaction that that really stands out for you in retrospect? Uh, Absolutely. I met Ed in 2010 because of his book, The Politics of Genocide. And the next year, NATO started bombing Libya in the name of stopping genocide. And he told me that he felt like he was being run over by a herd of water buffalo. He was such a wonderful person. Kind, generous, modest, ironic. Ed Ed lived the social ideals that he expressed. And I don't know how anyone could have ever said there was anything inconsistent uh, between his social ideals and the way that he treated other people, which, which was just a wonderfully respectful, cooperative, uh, playful, um, often often people we admire a great deal for their talent or intellect uh, are not the greatest people in their actual interactions inter- with others, but Ed was the opposite. That was noted broadcaster and writer Anne Garrison. Edward Herman was both an inspiration 
and a promoter of groups seeking to overcome media censorship. One such group was Project Censored, the media research project headquartered out of Sonoma State University in California, which publishes an annual list of the most censored stories of the previous year. Mickey Huff is its current director and co-host with Peter Phillips of the Project Censored show, broadcast out of KPFA Pacifica Radio in Berkeley, California. Huff wrote a reverent commentary about Edward Herman, which appeared on the Project Censored website. Huff related that Edward Herman had updated the propaganda model presented in Manufacturing Consent in a special essay appearing in the recently released Censored 2018. Clearly, when that book came out in 1988, it really gave theoretical framework to what a lot of media scholars were already, you know, thinking about or what they were already, you know, really wondering in terms of what shaped the news. Project Censored is, is, a, is a critical media literacy education organization, really, and we have long used the propaganda model in all of our media classes, social science classes, social classes, comms classes. Um, again, I mean, it's, it's a classic theoretical framework to deconstruct and understand media propaganda. Maybe tell us a little bit about some of the, uh, the, the back and forth that was going on between you and Edward Herman uh, as you were sorting out this uh, or, or putting together this uh, inclusion into the latest censored book. I had talked and worked with him a little bit years earlier before I even started with Project Censored at a project called Retropol that was uh, um, an organization that also used student research to conduct uh, polls about um, how polls were actually used to shape public opinion, not really reflect them so much, and um, also looking at what public knowledge is on factual material and then asking questions about the same topics to see what the disconnect is in terms of, you know, wh why, why people believe certain things. And Ed Herman was actually one of our great supporters at Retropole. So that was my first, you know, encounters with him personally. You know, I wrote him now with Project Censored, and I said, hey, it's Mickey from Project Censored. You may not remember me, and, you know, that kind of thing. And, uh, you know, he wrote, you know, I, I, I said, this is a long shot, but uh, we'd be honored if you, you had the time to, to give us your thoughts for our book upon the 30th anniversary of the propaganda model that's, that's coming up here. And, um, you know, I said, I'm, I understand you're busy. I know you have a lot going on. And, um, but, you know, let us know. And uh, he really he shot back right, right away mm. and said, hey, you know, um, I've got two other pieces in the hopper um, that I'm working on. And one of them was the monthly review piece on Russia and fake news. Uh, he said, but if, I'm, if I can get a grip on that one, uh, I'd be honored to write uh, a chapter for, for you guys this year. And so we were pleasantly surprised and really happy about it, and we corresponded a little bit through the spring. And uh, again, you know, Ed was in his early 90s, and uh, just an amazing, really an amazing person. I mean, just so prolific and, you know, just really lucid. And we had a few phone calls um, during that period of time as well, you know, where he was, uh, he was like, I'm really working on this piece now, and the monthly review piece is out the door and by the way, I encourage people to read that monthly review piece online. Um, but nevertheless, um, he uh, it was we had some really great interactions where he was he would call and say, "I'm I'm I'm uh, you know I'm, I get a little tired. I, I can work four or five six hours a day, you know, and I got to kind of take a break." And um, and so we had deadlines to meet as we got through June into into June. And you know, we just talked back and forth. But he he was a he was a perfectionist, really. He. He said, I really want to go and suss this out, or, 
you know, can I get one more pass at this draft? I have I have a couple things I needed to add to this. Gosh, what a humble person. I mean, a, a brilliant man, but he was just so down to earth and reasonable and dedicated. Um, and uh, he, he gave us a great chapter that took on the challenges, you know, the challengers of the propaganda model over the years. And uh, in my view, really resoundingly um, refuted many of the criticisms of the propaganda model over the years and talked about the new age of the Internet and the Facebook, Google, Microsoft, algorithmic giants. And, you know, he really was kind of updating a lot of what was going on with the propaganda model. And uh, through June, uh, we finally got things things wrapped up. Um, had a, lot, I know, a couple final phone calls and email passes during editing. And, gosh, he was funny. Um, so what a great sense of humor. Uh, you know, even <laughs> self-deprecating at times. You know, I literally laughed out loud at a couple of the quips that he made in, the, in some of our email exchanges about how, you know, he, he looked over something and was like, oh, how could I possibly have missed this or that? <laughs> um, but, you know, it was just such an honor to you know, get to talk with him, and I was greatly saddened uh, of his recent passing. Um, and I, I actually was just on the verge of reaching out to him. And, uh, yeah, I, I, didn't, I don't believe he was doing any kind of interviews, but... I was just on the way to, you know, get back in touch with him and thank him again and, you know, make sure he received copies of the book and, and all that, and he had he had passed away. Um, but, I, I again, uh, we're honored at Project Censored to, um, to have had the opportunity to work with Ed Herman and um, to publish what might, might be his last work. And from At least that's from my knowledge right now. I know Matt Taibbi wrote online at Rolling Stone that the monthly review piece was the final piece, as did a few others, but... Um, I know for a fact that this was the piece that he did after that one. Um, and in fact, it's a 30 year retrospective. So, uh, seems like a fitting, certainly a, I wish it wasn't his last piece, uh, but it's certainly a fitting final piece from such a pr- brilliant and prolific author as Edward Herman. Does he also, uh, get us into the whole realm of what we're seeing now, what they call a post-truth fake news, uh, we're moving to an era where the New York Times doesn't seem to have uh, you know, all-powerful control over what's being dispensed in the popular realm. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, as, as the subtitle of our book suggests, Pressed Freedoms in a Post-Truth World, uh, the Rutgers Media scholar Deepa Kumar did the intro, our foreword for us this year, and riffs all about the post-truth world and alternative facts and fake news. And we actually have a couple of chapters uh, Andy Roth and I talk about it, Nolan Higdon and I have a whole chapter on fake news and, and alternative facts and post-truth world. And, um, you know, we didn't, I, I didn't guide um, Ed Herman in any way when he was writing this, but if, if you go through and, and look through, when he particularly gets to the part about the Internet giants and surveillance marketing, um, you know, he, he, he goes on himself to say, and I'll, I'll read his own writing here just so you can see where he's going, uh, he talks about how postings on Facebook have become a major news source for ordinary Facebook users and for other online services like Huffington Post and BuzzFeed and Facebook, offic- and Facebook officials, partly in response to charges of allowing and passing along fake news, have been driven to manage the flow of news. And this has included developing and utilizing algorithms that can automatically prune out materials that violate moral or other standards but Facebook officials have also engaged in negotiations with reputable news sources that seek access to the Facebook platform and want to participate in Facebook's rulemaking 
on access. And as Jonathan Kauplin asks, how long before Facebook becomes the controlling force in the online journalism business? So you can see that uh, clearly Ed Herman was thinking about this whole concept of fake news in its recent iteration. He was thinking about how this is the new conglomerated media ownership um, representation or manifestation and uh, was still rife with the conflicts from ads and elite sourcing uh, and ideological proclivity and bias for whether it's neoliberalism or so-called open markets. Um, and now what we see is Google is suppressing with its algorithms and searches. It's suppressing a lot of alternative narratives to official stories. Uh, in fact, Eric Schmidt publicly admitted that they were doing this. Uh, so, uh, you know, the propaganda model... Uh, like any theory, it has it, it's it's um, it doesn't perfectly explain everything, and and nor did Herman or Chomsky ever say that it would or did, but it has explained quite a bit over the years, and I think that the propaganda model is ever as relevant now as it was 30 years ago. We just have to really turn our sights to sort of the new face of big media and online presence and algorithms as a new form of censorship. Okay, well. Mickey Huff, unless there's anything else you'd like to share, an anecdote, uh, perhaps. One thing that stands out is, uh, you know, in one of the phone, in one of the email conversations we had, that um, I was trying to make sense of a particular note uh, or a particular thing that that had gone on there, and um, in something he had written, and it was writing him for a clarification statement, and I had suspected that it was a, you know, it was an error, and um, you know, he just overlooked it, uh, and he he shot back right away with an email that was incredibly hilarious and in his self-deprecating way um you know he you know where he unleashed a few expletives on himself <laughs> and said oh how could i possibly have missed that uh, uh or something and i just i just thought to myself just like wow you know here's a someone that's a, a nanogenarian and uh hasn't lost the uh the art or skill set of of sort of poking fun of uh, at himself um and uh, again he was just really gracious human being, and uh, I just feel really honored to have been able to have uh, a few of the correspondence that we did. And, of course, at Project Censored, uh, we're very honored to share this very important work and update on the propaganda model. So I, I certainly hope that uh, more people will read it. I've been speaking with Mickey Huff. Uh, he is director of Project Censored and co-host with Peter Phillips of the Project Censored show, broadcast out of KPFA Pacifica Radio in Berkeley. Edward Herman passed away from bladder cancer at the age of 92 on November 11, 2017. He leaves behind his widow and longtime friend Christine Abbott, a brother, Harris Herman, a stepdaughter, and 19 books and numerous articles and papers. Herman has contributed dozens of articles to global research since the site was created in 2001. To access those articles, please visit the URL www.globalresearch.ca forward slash author forward slash Edward hyphen S hyphen Herman. Edward Herman was also a piano player and reportedly fond of Wolfgang Abadeus Mozart. Music this week was from Mozart's Piano Sonata Number no. 12 in F major performed by Pavali Jampanen and Mozart's Sonata Number no. 13 in B flat major performed by Brendan Kinsella. Many thanks this week to all our guests for taking the time to share their remembrances of Edward Herman. This program, along with other installments of the Global Research News Hour, is available for download from the Global Research website. 
My name is Michael Welch. Thank you for joining us. Please come back next week for another installment of the Global Research News Hour, and stay tuned for your next regularly scheduled program.